so often throughout the course of history, patriots rise up at a time of need for truth and freedom. These people are called disciples of liberty for their undying love of freedom. The call has been sounded. Will you answer that call or sit back and let freedom die away? Unifying patriots everywhere against the evil trying to destroy America's freedom. You're listening to the Disciples of Liberty radio show on the America Out Loud Network. Now here's your host, Tim Alders. there and welcome to the Disciples of Liberty show. I'm Brian Hyde once again filling in for Tim Alders. Reaching out to every person who is willing to stand up and claim their birthright as a free individual. I know you think there'd be throngs, right? You think that you think we'd be shoulder to shoulder. There'd be so many people you could hardly find a place to stand. But uh, sometimes it kind of feels a little lonely, right? <laughs> it's well, not that many people seem to think this is this is such a great idea. Maybe they're scared, maybe they just don't understand what's at stake. Clearly, you do, and for that, I thank you for being a part of the audience of this program, for being a patron of the America Out Loud Network, and uh, I would urge you, please, do business with the sponsors that you hear supporting this network. Make sure they know that their message is being heard, that it's, it's reaching ears of people who care, people who act. So, I've got a whole list of things that are wrong that need to be fixed. You probably heard most of them, so today I thought maybe... We can start with something for which we ought to feel grateful. We don't do this often enough. And I mean tally up the things in our lives that have actually gone right, or sometimes the things that just make life worthwhile. And I think one of the places where we're most guilty of this is uh, we we see little incremental changes come along, and um, some of you can still, you know, chart this progress. You remember what it was like when, if if, if you were out with friends, And you needed to call home. You didn't have a cell phone. You had to find a payphone. And heaven forbid, if you didn't have a dime or later a quarter, you'd have to make a collect call. I mean, if you ask a kid today, hey, could you go make a collect call? First of all, they'd be like, what? How? Good luck finding a payphone. I want to walk you through a little article from Alexander Hammond, writing this for the Foundation for Economic Education. Now, keep in mind, this was published... January 2nd of 2020. So this is before all the fun and games of the last 18 months started. But uh, Alexander Hammond goes through the 20 biggest advances in tech over the last 20 years. And this is fascinating, not just from the standpoint. I mean, if, you, if, you're, if you're kind of a nerd, if, you, if you're a techie and you like this kind of stuff, that's great. But when you look at the different things that have influenced how we do commerce, how we do our shopping, how we get entertainment, how we communicate, how we find information. It really is pretty remarkable. But, you know, since we were living life and it was happening slowly over a 20-year period, all of this stuff seemed pretty incremental, maybe not even that noteworthy. Until you look back on it, you realize, my goodness, uh, what's taken place in the last 20 years is pretty significant. I have to confess, this is what got me thinking about this today. A friend had posted an obituary on Facebook for, um, I assume it was a relative of his. I can't imagine he'd do this for a stranger. But it was uh, a sweet 98-year-old lady 
who had just passed away. And it just hit me as I was looking at her age, thinking in 98 years, think about what that woman has seen play out. You know, from she, she would have, air, airplane flight would have been a normal thing, right? She, she was younger than, than the Wright brothers' first flight, but from simple airplanes to, you know, sending people to the stars. I mean, that's pretty amazing stuff. But let's bring it back a little closer to home. Let's start with the 20 biggest advances in tech over the last 20 years. I'll just walk through this list quickly. Smartphones. You knew that was going to be at the top of the list, right? Mobile phones existed before the 21st century, but in the last 20 years, the capabilities of mobile phones have improved enormously. And in June of 2007, that's when Apple released the iPhone, the first touchscreen smartphone with mass market appeal. And a lot of other companies took inspiration from the iPhone. Now, as a consequence, smartphones have become an integral part of day-to-day life for billions of people all over the world. You can go to the poorest areas of Africa and find people with smartphones that are connecting and, you know, playing games and doing stuff. Today, we take pictures, we navigate without maps, we order food, we play games, we message friends, we listen to music, all on our smartphones. And I don't know if you knew this, but you could also use them to call people. Ha! Go figure. Then there's flash drives. And I believe just in the time since this article was first published almost two years ago, the storage capacity of flash drives has increased. Now, Alexander Hammond is celebrating the flash drives that were first sold by IBM back in 2000. This is where you could easily store files or photos or videos with storage capacity, you know, that's so large it would have been unfathomable just a few decades ago. So two years ago, a 128 gig flash drive was available for less than $20 on Amazon, but had 80,000 times the storage capacity of a standard 1.44 megabyte floppy disk. Do you remember when we used to have to use these? That was the most popular type of storage disk in the 1990s. Then you have Skype. This is number three, the 20 biggest advances in tech over the last 20 years. Launched in August of 2003, Skype transformed the way that people communicate communicate rather across borders. Yeah, before Skype, calling friends or family abroad, it cost a lot of money. Do we even remember what long-distance charges were like? Today, speaking to people on the other side of the world or even video calling with them is practically free. I like to use that personally. I This last year, I connected with uh, my biological parents. I was adopted at four days old and, you know, got to, got to meet them for the first time. I still have never met my biological dad in person, but he and I Skype every week. And I got to say, it's pretty cool. Not only from the standpoint of being in touch with somebody, but uh, being in touch with somebody who actually looks like me, you know, who I get the chance to visit with and share things with. Very cool. And like they say, it's almost free. (laughs) Number four on the list is Google. Google's search engine actually premiered in the late 1990s, but the company went public in 2004, which of course is what led to its colossal growth. Now, Google revolutionized the way that people search for information online. Every hour, more than 228 million Google searches take place. Every hour. And today, Google's part of Alphabet, Inc., which is a company offering dozens of services like translations, Gmail, Docs, Chrome web browser, and more. Okay, here's one I think a lot of us will relate to. 
Google Maps. It was in February 2005 Google launched its mapping service, which changed the way that many people travel. With the app available on virtually all smartphones, Google Maps has made getting lost virtually impossible. I mean, it's it's easy to forget. Just a couple decades ago, most travel involved extensive route planning. Paper maps nearly always were necessary when venturing to unfamiliar places. You may have had an atlas you kept in your automobile just to make sure you knew which road connects to which road so you could get where you had to go. I mean, I'm thinking back to the primitive early days of Google Maps where I'd say, okay, I want to travel from St. George, Utah to Disneyland. And it would calculate, okay, here's the route. So you're going to go this many miles on I-15, and you're going to turn off here, and you're going to go, and, and it would walk you through step by step, but you still had to print it out. I mean, it was a huge improvement. It was way better than, okay, so we take this highway to this highway, and you had to be paying ultra close attention to all the signs. You actually were told it's going to be in about three and a half miles. We're watching for it. There it is. But that seems like following caveman pictograms on the on the cave wall i think it says we take a left up here you know okay uh compared to the fact that you can do it just in real time now it can mislead you there are there are some things that still you know need to be worked out but yeah google maps i don't stress about getting places very often because i can just say i need to go here sometimes just the name sometimes put in the address it'll tell me exactly how to get there Now, here's another major advance in tech over the last 20 years, the Human Genome Project. This one's actually, I don't know if it's good or bad, but in April of 2003, scientists successfully sequenced the entire human genome. And through the sequencing of our roughly 23,000 genes, the project shed light on many different scientific fields, including disease treatment, human migration, evolution, molecular medicine, I mentioned earlier, I I met up with my uh, biological, uh, I connected with my biological parents. That started with a DNA test through 23andMe. We thought it might open some doors. It did. Led to some pretty interesting places. Number seven on the list, 20 biggest advances in the last 20 years in tech, YouTube. Now, in May 2005, the first video was uploaded to what today is the world's most popular video sharing website. From Harvard University lectures on quantum mechanics and favorite TV episodes to how-to tutorials and funny cat videos, billions of pieces of content can be streamed on YouTube for free. Now, isn't it ironic? Again, two years after this article was written, YouTube is one of the most ruthless sources of censorship of anything anything that relates to You know, COVID or alternative treatments, ivermectin, you know, hydroxychloroquine. YouTube, man, they yank down videos faster than ever. Kind of funny what a difference just just a few months can make, right? Number eight on the list is graphene. Now, some of you have heard about this in relation to the COVID vaccine. In 2004, researchers at University of Manchester became the first scientists to isolate graphene. Graphene is an atom-thin carbon allotrope that can be isolated from graphite. That's the soft, flaky material that we use in pencil lead. And although humans have been using graphite since the Neolithic era, isolating graphene was previously impossible. But with its unique, conductive, transparent, and flexible properties, graphene has enormous potential 
to create even more efficient solar panels, water filtration systems, even defenses against mosquitoes. Now, see, I would support that last part wholeheartedly. Anything to uh, thin out those little bloodsuckers. Number nine on the list is Bluetooth. While Bluetooth technology was officially unveiled in 1999, it was just in the early 2000s that manufacturers began to adopt Bluetooth for use in computers and mobile phones. Today, Bluetooth is featured in a wide range of devices. It's become an integral part of many people's day-to-day lives. Then there's Facebook. First developed in 2004, Facebook was not the first social media website. Due to its simplicity to use, however, it quickly overtook existing social networking sites like Friendster or MySpace. And with 2.41 billion active users per month, remember this is as of January 2020, that's almost a third of the world's population. Facebook has transformed the way that billions of people share news and personal experiences with one another. It's interesting, too, that Facebook has has kind of emerged as one of the, uh, I don't know if I'd say bad guys, but one of the questionable characters in terms of uh, there is no free flow of information. The fact checkers, man, they, they are around every corner looking to remind you this violates our terms of service. Why? Well, it questions the prevailing narrative. And by the way, Facebook has experimented, and this is documented, with whether or not their Facebook algorithms could be used to manipulate people's emotions. In other words, what shows up in your newsfeed on Facebook can directly correspond to how your mood is. It can make you feel anxious or hopeless or happy or hopeful. Why would they do that kind of research? I don't know. I don't have the answer to that. But they have done that research. And it should at least make you stop and think, okay, how much again do I pay for my Facebook membership every month? Oh, nothing? Then the next question in your mind is, is the product me rather than Facebook? Yeah, it's you and your information. All right, back to the list. Number 11, Curiosity, the Mars rover. First launched in November of 2011, Curiosity's looking for signs of habitability on Mars. Now, in 2014, the rover uncovered one of the biggest space discoveries of this millennium when it found water under the surface of the red planet. Curiosity's work could help humans become an interplanetary species in just a few decades' time. Although I did see an article today that said, uh, Science confirms no human being could last more than four years on Mars. I don't know the reason. I don't know if it's, you know, lack of protection from, you know, radiation or whatever, but I'll still probably enjoy, you know, the Total Recall movie, at least, at least for another couple times. Then you have electric cars. Now, electric cars are not exactly a 21st century invention, but it wasn't until the 2000s that these vehicles were built on a large scale. Commercially available electric cars like the Tesla Roadster or the Nissan Leaf can be plugged into any electrical socket to charge. They don't require fossil fuels to run. Although fossil fuels are more often used to generate the electricity, they do need to run. And though considered a fad by some, electric cars are becoming ever more popular, with more than 1.5 million units sold in 2018. I think that number is probably up considerably. Number 13 on the list was driverless cars. In August 2012, Google announced that its automated vehicles had completed over 300,000 miles of driving accident-free. 
Now, although Google self, self-driving cars are most popular at the moment, nearly every car manufacturer has created or is planning to develop automated cars. And currently, these cars are in the testing stages, but provided the technology isn't hindered by overzealous regulations, probably likely to see automated cars commercially available in the next few years. The Tesla can actually drive itself. I've sat in one and watched a friend program it, and this was not in, you know, some isolated country road. Oh, look, it can drive in a straight line. This was in heavy city traffic, and that car drove itself as perfectly as could be. It was pretty remarkable and just a little bit scary. Just, you know, a little. Number 14 on the list of the biggest tech advances over the last 20 years, the Large Hadron Collider, LHC. With its first test run back in 2013, the LHC became the world's largest and most powerful particle accelerator. By the way, it's also the world's largest single machine. And the LHC allows scientists to run experiments on some of the most complex theories in physics. Their most important finding so far, the Higgs boson particle. The discovery of this particle lends strong support to the standard model of particle physics, which describes most of the fundamental forces in the universe. Number 15 on the list. I hadn't heard of this, but it's the Abiocore artificial heart. Back in 2001, that was uh, created by Massachusetts-based company Abiomed, the Abiocor artificial heart became the first artificial heart to successfully replace a human heart in heart transplant procedures. Now, this heart powers itself. Yeah, just like Iron Man, right? Unlike previous artificial hearts, it doesn't need intrusive wires that would heighten the likelihood of infection and death. Number 16 on the list is 3D printing, and although 3D printers are... Um, something that began in the 80s, the development of cheaper manufacturing methods and the open source software has contributed to a 3D printing revolution in the last two decades. Today, 3D printers are being used to print spare parts, whole houses, medicines, bionic limbs, even entire human organs. Oh, and guns. Just in case somebody gets the bright idea that, you know, we'll impose some gun control. They'll never make another gun. Nope. 3D printer begs to uh, differ. Number 17 is the Amazon Kindle. Back in 2007, Amazon released the Kindle, and then a plethora of e-readers changed the way that people read. Thanks to these electronic readers, you don't need to carry around heavy stacks of books. And Best of all, independent authors can get their books to an audience of millions of people without having to go through a publisher. Then there's stem cell research. Now, stem cells are the basic cells that can become almost any type of cell in the body. They're used to grow things like kidneys, lungs, brain, and heart tissue. That kind of technology could save millions of lives in the coming decades as it means patients will no longer have to wait for donor organs or to take harsh medicines to treat their ailments. Here's another one that's even more common, uh, that we're seeing more and more commonly each day. Number 19, multi-use rockets. Do you realize it was just November and December of 2015, two separate private companies, Blue Origin and SpaceX, successfully landed reusable rockets. They have been very busy ever since. And of course, they're cheapening the cost of getting to space as well as bringing commercial space travel one step closer to reality. And finally, there's gene editing. This is number 20 on the list. Back in 2012, researchers from Harvard University, the University of California at Berkeley, and the Broad Institute each independently discovered that a bacterial immune system known as CRISPR could be used as a gene-editing tool to change an organism's DNA. 
By cutting out pieces of harmful DNA, gene editing technology will likely change the future of medicine and could eventually eradicate some major diseases. By the way, do yourself a favor and watch the movie Gattaca to see one possible end that that could be taken to. It's, you know, just a just a little bit concerning. So there you have it. 20 biggest advances in the last 20 years. Something to think about as you contemplate uh, what makes your life simple. Now, one thing that we've noticed, too, though, is that there was a technocracy that has come into being. And I, I saw a very hopeful article from Thomas L. Knapp from the William Lloyd Garrison Center for uh, Libertarian Advocacy Journalism. He says the technocracy flowered and failed. Now, you may see this as good news, but basically his point is history is littered with social and political movements, which, while failing to survive as, to survive as movements, still largely achieved their goals. So take, for instance, the Prohibition Party's National Convention. Something like that could take place in a phone booth these days. But its disastrous single policy proposal was adopted as a constitutional amendment. It mutated into the equally disastrous war on drugs and continues to torment the modern marketplace with draconian regulation. Most socialist parties have either disappeared into the dustbin of history or find themselves reduced to glorified supper clubs, featuring loud arguments over whether the Soviet Union was a bureaucratic deformation or a degenerated worker state. But you got to remember, Socialist Party candidate Norman Thomas's 885,000 votes in the 1932 presidential election arguably led to FDR's New Deal and the modern welfare state. Thomas Knapp says few people remember or even learned about the technocracy movement of the 1930s. That movement failed in its formal goal of replacing democratic legislatures with boards of experts to run so-called society and the economy in accordance with science. But he says over time, the concept took root in America's regulatory apparatus. Nearly every aspect of our lives has, for several decades, been subject to scrutiny and oversight by experts. That includes the food we eat, the drugs we take, the cars we drive, the securities we invest in. You name it. If there's a government bureau somewhere full of whoring computers and nerds with slide rules figuring out what we may or may not do, or they're figuring out what, uh, in what way we may do it. And while few of us, or rather while most of us, gripe about particular technocratic edicts, few people question the premise itself. It's just taken as obvious the man in the lab coat knows more about airbags and crop yields than the Honorable Representative from Minnesota. So technocracy took root. And of course, with the COVID-19 pandemic, it blossomed into the man-eating plant from Little Shop of Horrors. Starting last year, public health technocrats, with of course the assistance of opportunistic politicians, seized control over huge parts of our lives, our lives rather, mass house arrests without charge or trial, mask mandates, vaccine mandates, passport schemes, etc. And then proceeded to vacillate and scrap among themselves over the divvying up of their new power as more than 600,000 Americans died and the economy tanked. Now, to add insult to injury, the parts of the country where the experts enjoyed less deference seem to have fared no worse, and in some cases better, than areas where the politicians slavishly and without question enforced every technocratic edict. So technocracy finally got its big shot at proving itself, and Thomas L. Knapp says it failed miserably. Why? Because public health technocracy isn't really about 
the health of the public. It's about policy, which is about politics, which is about power. And in this case, the technocrats exercise their power abusively and ineffectually to boot. So he says it's time to take that power away. I don't know if that's going to happen. I hope it does. And I think we've been given plenty of evidence as to why it should happen. But whether or not that happens is going to depend largely on whether you and I make up our minds to either go along or not. It really is that simple. You can withdraw your consent. And politicians can't do a thing about it. They can try, but not without losing the moral high ground. I'm Brian Hyde sitting in for Tim Alders. This is the Disciples of Liberty on the America Out Loud Network. Hail, my fellow Americans. How did you feel watching footage on the news of domestic terrorists looting our stores and burning our cities down? Uh, You were probably disgusted and angry as much as I was. It's disturbing what's going on. Well, you'd be shocked to know that your shopping habits are supporting these extremists. Companies like Amazon, Nike, Disney, FedEx, it's an endless list. And they've been supporting these radical groups. Let's stop supporting companies that fund these extremist groups. We can all do our part. Visit shoptotheright.com and you'll find businesses in a nationwide database and companies that are aligned with our American values. Visit shoptotheright.com and let's all make a difference. Is a record player the best way to listen to music? Of course not. So why are you still taking vitamins that haven't been upgraded since the 1930s? Even if your vitamins aren't hard to swallow, it's time to upgrade to Healthy Cells pill-free, patent-pending microgel supplements that work at the cellular level to boost immune health, sleep better, focus deeper, and stay younger longer. They taste great, convenient on the go, and they're more natural too, without chemical binders, fillers, and coatings. Go to HealthyCell.com and use code OUTLOUD for 20% off your first order of any product. That's HealthyCell.com, H-E-A-L-T-H-Y-C-E-L-L, and use code OUTLOUD for 20% off. Today, America stands at the crossroads of history. Our actions will determine the fate of our nation. Well, that journey starts here and starts now. We invite you to join us in making the ultimate difference. Subscribe to our podcast and newsletters. Turn notifications on and stay in the know. You'll find all that back at AmericaOutloud.com. Liberty and justice for all. Once again, welcome back. This is the Disciples of Liberty show. I'm Brian Hyde filling in for Tim Alders on the America Out Loud Network. All right, I got I got some contemplative stuff here for you. It's it's enough. It might make you uncomfortable, so I'm going to give you that warning ahead of time. This this could cause you to think at a little bit deeper level. 
But I think this is this is the kind of thing that has to be sorted out in each and every one of our minds as individuals. And and the time of putting it off, the time of well, I'll just hide in the crowd, or I'll I'll go wait this out somewhere else, somewhere safe, where I'm not feeling any pressure. Um, that time is no longer possible. You, you you don't have the option of passing on this one. So a couple of articles that I want to share with you. The first one is from Barry Brownstein. This was from the American Institute for Economic Research, and it's called The Totalitarian Roots of Vaccine Mandates. And I hope you understand, you know, I talk a lot about the vaccine mandates. You notice I don't spend as much time trying to convince you the vaccine is nanobots that are going to take over your mind or whatever. There are some very convincing arguments as to why people should or should not take the vaccine. But it's the mandate. It's the idea that someone is claiming moral authority to negate my personal autonomy, your personal autonomy, and force us to take something that we may or may not want into our bodies. We, we lose our bodily autonomy if they claim that power. Barry Brownstein does a marvelous job of comparing the, the kind of thinking historically that has, has uh, permitted this kind of action. It's not the side of history you want to be on. And if you're not familiar with the Jacobins and the French Revolution, you'll know after we get through this article. The second one, and I'm saving this one for last, is from Judge Andrew Napolitano. And this is the one that really should cause you to contemplate, too, because his question is, what happens when the Constitution fails us? In other, in other words, he gives the background. Why was the Constitution written in the first place? What was it supposed to accomplish And if it's not accomplishing that, what are the options when government becomes predatory and refuses to recognize limits on its power? I think he has a very reasonable answer, but again, it's it's one that is almost certain to cause discomfort for people who aren't used to really thinking about this. So let's dive in. Let's talk about the totalitarian roots of vaccine mandates. This is from Barry Brownstein, uh, writing for the American Institute for Economic Research. Now, he says, over the course of the pandemic, principles of what a free society means are being redefined by collectivists. And this was absolutely stunning. He says, consider this essay. Don't COVID vaccine mandates actually promote freedom? Medical ethicists Kyle Ferguson and Andrew Kaplan argue those who oppose cracking down on the unvaccinated are getting it all wrong. Ferguson and Kaplan are sure their opponents have a flawed view of freedom. They argue passports and mandates are hardly strong-arm tactics. These strategies are better seen as, are you ready for this, liberty inducers. They bring about freedom rather than deplete it. Yeah, I'll, I'll pause while you, I let the look of incredulity you know, fade from your face. Really? Passports and mandates, that actually brings liberty? Yeah, they say. They they add that a successful COVID-19 vaccination campaign will liberate us as individuals and as a collective from the callous grip of a pandemic that just won't seem to end. Wow. I mean, not since I was reading the book 1984 and things like freedom is slavery, (laughs) war is peace, ignorance is strength. Have I seen something more Orwellian than this? They've just come close to arguing that slavery is freedom, says Barry Brownstein. 
Now, he says, Ferguson and Kaplan assure us that the Enlightenment view of the unbound individual is outdated. So they want to reimagine freedom as communal, starting with the individual's participation in a community and the kind of community in which the individual lives. And then they develop their argument. Here, freedom is communal rather than individualistic. And rather than being unbound, individuals in the free community are bound by and to each other. Communal freedom achieves much more than the unbound individual ever could. It creates new possibilities and expands our horizons. Life is enhanced when our community is free because we can participate in communal freedom and the goods it creates. I'm sorry, I, you know, I got to sit here and make sure my gag reflex isn't going to kick in. Seriously? How does it create new possibilities and expand our horizons? When it prizes uniformity over the individual. Uniformity of thought is not synonymous with with freedom. As Barry Brownstein says, they want to take us back to the future with Rousseau as their guide. From their essay, this view of freedom is like that of Rousseau's. A society is made free by individuals cooperating, by binding themselves to each other and to the rational pursuit of common goals. From this perspective, vaccine mandates and other strong-arm tactics induce liberty rather than restrict it. Wow. Talk about inverting reality. But you see what's motivating them, right? It's the common good. The reason you can't have individual rights is because someone has a vision of what the common good is, and in order to get there, we've got to make sure that individuals aren't stepping out of line. Barry Brownstein says, For some, flowery visions of the common good have always been seductive. In The Road to Serfdom, Friedrich Hayek observes that even well-meaning people will ask if it be necessary to achieve important ends. Why shouldn't the system be run by decent people for the good of the community as a whole? Now, Hayek challenges the axiomatic belief that wise people can tell others what the common good is. He explains why there is no such thing as the common good. The welfare and happiness of millions cannot be measured on a single scale of less or more. The welfare of the people, like the happiness of a man, depends upon a great many things that can be provided in an an infinite variety of combinations. Pulitzer Prize-winning historian James McGregor Burns recounts in his book Fire and Light how Rousseau's ideas of the general will led to the brutality of his disciple Robespierre. Like Hayek, Burns explains there can be no agreement about what the common good is. Claiming to rule by the common good inevitably leads to excesses. Robespierre and other, the other 11 men who made up the Committee of Public Safety ruled France with unlimited power and terror. So Burns explains what Rousseau did not understand. Peaceful and democratic conflict is crucial to the achievement of freedom. Instead, Rousseau imagined, like Ferguson and Kaplan, a new society filled with good citizens working selflessly and with identical minds for the common good. Now, Rousseau's ideas are mantras for censors. In Rousseau's world, there would be no pesky, long debates, dissensions, and tumult impending implementation of the common good. So let's bring this back to something that you can probably relate to more in more modern times. Barry Brownstein writes, Dr. Fauci is sure he is right, and he has had enough of those making different choices than his guidance. 
Quote, I respect people's freedom. And when you're talking about a public health crisis that we've been going through for now, well, for well over a year and a half, the time has come. Enough is enough. So let's not hide Fauci's plain meaning, says Barry Brownstein. I respect people's freedom to do what I tell them. Bingo. That's it. And now the basic human right to decide what goes into your body is now being reversed. You're to take all the vaccines that Dr. Fauci and Pfizer deem necessary. They, not you, will decide the parameters of your freedom with Ferguson and Kaplan cheering them on. Rest easy, like Robespierre, the fallible decisions of Dr. Fauci, politicians, bureaucrats, and cronies are all for the common good. And with freedom redefined, there will be no need to take personal responsibility for your health decisions. Those who don't go along with official guidance must be dealt with. Ban them from travel, from schools, and from employment. In Ferguson and Kaplan's Rousseauian view, society's merely expunging those that won't take a knee to whatever is proclaimed the common good. Now, Burns explains that leaders operating from the common good mindset have the absolute conviction that they are right. Burns explores the French Revolution as he recounts the totalitarian tyranny of the the Jacobins. The Jacobins believed only they understood the general will of the French people. Hence, they were morally right. Burns continues, opposition was considered not merely mistaken, but evil and traitorous and hence punishable, even lethally. The Jacobins asserted a monopoly on virtue which meant to them a license to kill those who held up other values. Where do you see that also today? I see that among Antifa, to some extent among Black Lives Matters, the more radical groups out there that have aligned themselves. But that sounds like Antifa. Think about the uh, teacher in uh, California, in the Bay Area. This is a school teacher who was caught on tape by a Project Veritas reporter talking about how he has 180 days to turn his students into little revolutionaries, to make them radicalized. And one of the kids expressed some concern because this, this guy has, you know, pictures of Chairman Mao. He's got the North Korean state flag. He's got, you know, the Chinese flag. He's got the diversity flag. And he's got an Antifa flag right there in his classroom. One of the students expressed concern to this teacher. I don't know. That flag makes me feel uncomfortable. Gee, I don't, do you think he's seen Antifa out there in the streets spreading peace and love as only they can do? And how does this teacher respond when the student says, that flag makes me kind of nervous? The teacher tells him, well, it's a flag that is supposed to only make people nervous who are fascist. So he says, I don't know what to tell you. If you have a problem with it, maybe you should reconsider whose values you're aligning with. Holy cow. You know, I don't know that we're necessarily a better society back when we had horse weapons, but... I think we ought to at least, in this, teach, in this teacher's case, maybe revisit that and see if, if maybe we aren't missing something here. To sit there and mess with kids' minds like that? Because, hey, we have the monopoly on virtue. All right, back to Barry Brownstein's essay. Today, he says, health Jacobins don't argue that they should kill the unvaccinated, 
but there are some who argue the unvaccinated should be deprived of health care. I don't know if you've seen this, uh, but on, on social media, ooh, there's some truly ugly, ugly stuff. Joe Rogan was just diagnosed with COVID here a couple of days ago, and it's crazy how many people have been wishing for his death. I wish he would die. Why? Because he questions some of the narrative, because there are, he has a different point of view on some things. I actually saw this too, and I think I'll pass this along just for fun. Public service announcement. If you are wishing harm or death on another because they do not align to your beliefs or what you think they should be doing, it's time to check yourself because something's not right within. Now, this person says, I've seen a few disturbing comments or posts today stating things along the lines of, I have no empathy for the unvaccinated, let them die. Or we should put them all on an island to die. Now, if this doesn't seriously concern you, then I'm beyond concerned for humanity right now. Those comments are coming from unstable minds. I don't care what you choose to do or what you choose to believe, but people have a right to choose what goes into their body, period. And if you are wishing harm or death on another because they exercise that right, you have some seriously disturbed energies or inner demons within you. Are we that far gone that people are actually wishing death upon another for making choices that are best for them? Are you seeing the divide and insanity this is creating? Now, if that feels like, well, gee, you're wagging a finger in my face. I, you know, I'm not accusing you. I'm just saying we've seen the articles and we've seen the comments that, that seem to suggest that this is a mindset people are openly expressing. They're not saying this in hushed tones. They're saying it out loud. Like people shouldn't have a problem agreeing with this. So yeah, that's that's Jacobin thinking right there. Back to Barry Brownstein's essay. He says in his seminal essay, Individualism, True and False, Hayek contrasts true individualism and the false individualism of philosophers such as Rousseau. True individualism is a product of an acute consciousness of the limitations of the individual mind, which induces an attitude of humility toward the impersonal and anonymous social processes by which individuals help to create things greater than they know. In contrast, false individualism is the product of an exaggerated belief in the powers of individual reason and of a consequent contempt which has uh, for anything which has not been consciously designed by it or is not fully intelligible to it. So when Ferguson and Kaplan write, freedom is communal rather than individualistic, they, in Hayek's words, express the silliest of common misunderstandings. And Hayek explains the adoption of such ideas has been a source of modern socialism. Now, the error made by collectivist apologists is the belief that individualism postulates or bases its arguments on the assumption of the existence of isolated or self-contained individuals, instead of starting from men whose whole nature and character is determined by their existence in society. Now, this false individualism of Rousseau and others assumes everything which man achieves is the direct result of, and therefore subject to, the control of individual reason. Masquerading as people who reason the best, Ferguson and Kaplan, in Hayek's words, pretend to be able to directly comprehend social wholes like society. 
Brownstein says Hayek's explanation of true individualism is the antidote for such hubris. Hayek's approach is anti-rationalistic and regards man not as a highly rational and intelligent but very irrational and fallible being whose individual errors are corrected only in the course of social progress and which aims at making the best of a very imperfect material. Now, we can never make the best of imperfect material when posing as having superior knowledge and are allowed to, when those posing as having superior knowledge are allowed to coerce others. Hayek writes what individualism teaches us is that society is greater than the individual only insofar as it is free. Insofar it is controlled or directed, it is limited to the powers of individual minds which control or direct it. In other words, choose to be directed by the limited power of Dr. Fauci's mind or choose the virtually unlimited and unpredictable power of a free society. So he says, let's put this together. Barry Brownstein says, let's bring it home. Health collectivists behaving like Jacobins are sure there is one best way. They believe they are the arbiter of truth. Cloaking themselves in the holy robes of the augur of the common good, dissent is not to be tolerated. The end of the pandemic requires not that we follow the collectivists, but that we are free to consider different perspectives and discover in the course of an uncoerced social process what really works. What a beautiful explanation of how freedom works. Now, the problem some people have, and I mean, they will have legit heartburn over this. Ah, but there's no guarantee. How do you know it's going to work? How do you know people will make the right decision? And how you answer that question is going to betray, to a large extent, whether you trust humanity to make the right choice most of the time when provided with ample you know, knowledge or, or facts, or whether you have a seething distrust of society, maybe you see them as a big massive menace. See, for me, even though there are some people who will undoubtedly choose to use their freedom in unproductive and sometimes even harmful ways, particularly to themselves, I don't feel that I have the moral authority to step in there and stop them. Now, certainly I have moral authority to stop them from harming me or harming one of my loved ones or harming property. But this whole idea that, well, every person's a potential disease carrier, no. Get that out of your mind. Unless you are the person going around, you know, swabbing the back of everybody's sinuses so you can test them for COVID, and then, you know, you're paying for the COVID test, Unless you're willing to do that, and good luck getting people to volunteer to let you stick that swab up their nose. No. You do not get to assume that every person who hasn't proven to your satisfaction is, you know, somehow a disease vector. That's not your prerogative. Anything peaceful is off limits to your desires and your regulation. And it's messy, and sometimes people get it wrong, but the vast majority of people, given the choice and given the information to make up their own minds, will choose the right thing. Those who don't provide an excellent object lesson to the rest of the people around them of how better choices could have been made. Yeah, there's some pain involved. Sometimes freedom is messy. 
but it's the process by which we solve problems. Once you understand it's a process, not a destination, it becomes a little bit easier to to relax and realize what somebody else is doing that you don't approve of isn't something you should be obsessing over. And, And if you find yourself obsessing over it, maybe it's time to evaluate whether you are looking at things in a healthy, rational sort of way. So this brings us to the question, what do we do when the Constitution fails us? Judge Napolitano says, I've been writing for years asking if we still have the U.S. Constitution. And that issue has come into sharper focus in the past 18 months as mayors and governors have created dictatorial powers and exercised those powers to interfere with personal autonomy in America. Now, he says they've done this in utter disregard for the freedoms protected by the Constitution they have sworn to uphold by asserting that public health trumps personal liberty. So here's the backstory. He says government is essentially the negation of freedom. If the values underlying underlying rather the Declaration of Independence, the Constitution, and the Bill of Rights, maximum personal liberty and minimal government are to be taken seriously, then we all know that the government has gone so far astray as to make it unrecognizable to the revolutionaries who fought the British and to the founders and framers who wrote and ratified the Constitution and its first Ten Amendments. Now, Judge Napolitano says those underlying values are generally articulated in the first eight amendments, which restrain the government from interfering in personal liberty. The Ninth Amendment codifies that our rights are too numerous to list, and thus it requires the government to respect the natural unenumerated rights of all persons, in addition to those rights specifically enumerated. The Tenth Amendment reflects the ratifier's public understanding that the Constitution is a compact, voluntarily entered into by sovereign states, and when they entered, they only surrendered to the federal government those powers enumerated in the Constitution, and thus they retained the powers not surrendered. Now remember, all of this was the theoretical basis and public understanding of the American experiment in the 1780s and 90s. And of course, not all agreed with this. Many classical liberals opposed the ratification of the Constitution for fear that a new central government would control economic activities with its own bank, fight needless wars, invalidate state sovereignty, and curtail civil liberties. Guess what? Their fears are now reality. And it's helpful to remember, too, the first serious federal attack on personal liberty came in the form of the Alien and Sedition Acts in 1798. Do you remember these? They criticized criticisms, they criminalized, rather, criticisms of the federal government and the administration of President John Adams. The same generation, in some cases the same human beings that had written in the First Amendment, Congress shall make no law abridging the freedom of speech, did exactly that just seven years later. In response to the Alien and Sedition Acts, the two most prominent thinkers in America, Thomas Jefferson, who had written the Declaration of Independence, and James Madison, who was the scrivener of the Constitution and author of the Bill of Rights, secretly authored the Virginia and Kentucky Resolutions. Rather, Now, these manifestations of the compact theory of the Constitution were enacted by law 
or act enacted into law by Virginia and Kentucky legislatures. And what these legislatures did was they declared the Alien and Sedition Acts unconstitutional in their states. These resolutions reflected the views of many ratifiers of the Constitution that the states that formed the federal government retained the power to correct it. Stated differently, these state statutes declared the Alien and Sedition Acts, which were blatant violations of freedom of speech, to be null and void in Virginia and Kentucky. The underlying value here is that because the Constitution is a voluntary compact, those states that formed it and joined it voluntarily have the sovereign power to leave it. Nullification and secession as ideas were cast aside by the Supreme Court and by the outcome of the war between the states. But the defeat of an idea, politically, legally, or even militarily, cannot always bury the idea permanently. When an idea's time has come, nothing can stop it. Jefferson and Madison believed the Constitution protects the right to leave the government whenever it interferes with or fails to protect fundamental liberties. The very idea of of secession terrifies government, whether it be the feds or the states. You can understand why, right? Because if if it's successful, it diminishes government power and income. So has the Constitution failed us, asked Judge Napolitano. Well, there are two approaches to this question. A formal and functional approach. Formally, the Constitution is still the supreme law of the land and enjoys vitality. Formally, the government the Constitution established persists in America. But functionally, as an instrument of restraint, the Constitution is an abysmal failure. The feds regulate, tax, coerce, steal, and kill, and they bully the states as they see fit. Every day, some government official who has taken an oath to uphold the Constitution violates it with impunity. None of these violations, short of the war between the states, has been more public, affected more people, and produced more harm than the executive orders issued by mayors and governors in the name of public health. Even the states caved, as very few tried to protect the liberties that the Constitution guarantees. And he warns it will soon get worse. As the Biden administration grows more fearful of its inability to control the latest strains of COVID-19, it will begin to use coercive means to compel mask wearing and vaccine administration. And these so-called health measures are essentially experiments that when administered coercively by the government, violate the letter, values, and lessons of Nuremberg. And then the judge has a few questions. Like, if vaccines work, why do we need masks? If masks work, why do we need vaccines? If I'm a free person, why do I need the government telling me how to be healthy? If only the legislative branch of the government can write laws, why do we allow mayors and governors and the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention to do so? If the Constitution is the supreme law of the land, how can government attack the rights the Constitution protects? If freedom is our birthright, what has become of it? Judge Napolitano says the time has come to nullify government interferences with personal autonomy by disregarding them and to threaten seriously to leave and ignore the governments that hate our freedoms. If we don't do this, make way for voluntary servitude. 
I mean, that puts it right back in our court, doesn't it? He mentioned secession, and I know for some people it's like, oh boy, here we go, civil war. No, war between the states, or if you want to be more precise, Lincoln's war of uh, involuntary servitude. I know, some call it the war of northern aggression. Bottom line, it wasn't a civil war. The South wasn't trying to take over Washington, D.C. They wanted to go their own way. But you don't have to fight a civil war. You don't have to fight a war against northern aggression. All you have to be willing to do is to secede personally, whether it be from the federal government, whether it be from your state government. And I understand you're not going to get completely where they're still going to, we want our taxes. You owe us money. But think of how many ways you can reduce your governmental footprint simply by ignoring laws or regulations that you find onerous and counterproductive. And you understand, I'm not saying that you go out there and victimize people, right? You just choose not to live under any law that you have not personally consented to live under. I don't know. It sounds pretty reasonable to me, and it seems like a peaceful way to begin. I think we better uh, figure out where that line in the sand is sooner than later, though. I'm Brian Hyde, filling in for Tim Alders. This is the Disciples of Liberty show on the America Out Loud Network.